Accusations of discrimination are hitting the San Diego County Public Defender's Office. A new study finds air pollution may be masking the extent of global warming. And sexual harassment allegations are hitting the Sheriff's Department, highlighting a male-dominated culture in law enforcement. I'm Matt Hoffman, and this is KPBS Roundtable. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu O-L-L-I. This week on Roundtable, we're checking in with KPBS reporters and talking about some of their recent work. We're beginning today's show with allegations of a racist comment and homophobia from within the San Diego County Public Defender's Office. Two former deputy public defenders have filed lawsuits against the county. They're alleging discrimination and retaliation. Here to tell us more about it is KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. She's been digging into all this. And Amitha, thanks for being back on Roundtable. Oh, it's good to talk to you, Matt. Always good to have you here. So this story you have, it actually covers two separate lawsuits, but the heart of this begins with allegations of a racist comment coming from a supervisor, and that was in the county's public defender's office. Can you tell us more about this initial allegation here? Well, the supervisor in question is a woman by the name of Sherry Stone, and based on sworn statements, Stone yelled and personally attacked a black Latino lawyer by the name of Andre Bollinger back in August of 2020. The incident reportedly happened during a Zoom meeting of the Public Defender Association, that's the Public Defender Union. Stone sat on the board of the PDA. Bollinger addressed the board that day in August of 2020 and told board members that they were alienating attorneys of color in the office. Stone, allegedly, responded by calling Bollinger lazy. Now, I I do want to pause here for a moment and say that I spoke with multiple people connected to the office And they have told me that Bollinger is highly regarded as a public defender and widely viewed as a great trial lawyer. But Stone, on that day in August of 2020, kept on allegedly insulting Bollinger. She allegedly asked him how dare he try to lynch her and the PDA board, given his low acumen and poor performance. Her alleged comments reportedly stunned the meeting into silence, and then really outrage followed. And Amitha, in your story, you spoke with Zach Davina. He's one of the former public defenders now suing the county for wrongful termination. How is he involved in all this? Well, he was at the meeting and he sat on the Public Defender Union's Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Committee. Deputy public defenders who were upset by Stone's comments, they they found them to be racist. They found them to be intimidating. They thought that the intention was to not just silence Bollinger, but silence anyone who agreed with him. They, They took their outrage. They took their comments to Davina and others on that committee. And... That committee took a vote 
and ultimately recommended that Stone receive diversity training, that she be removed as supervisor in the office. And Davina has actually accused the public defender's office of wrongful termination here due to his sexuality. Here's some of what he told you about a performance review with supervisors, and this was back in 2020 before he was let go. Almost, I would say, the second or maybe third question after how are you was, you're pretty, sorry, um, you're pretty animated and flamboyant. Don't you think that hurts your clients? which I don't know how to describe (laughs) how that felt. (laughs) Now, Amitha, you also spoke with the lawyer representing Davina. What did he have to say about all this? Zach Davina's lawyer is a guy by the name of Christopher Ledmer. And, And he made several points to me during our interview. One is that the fact that the people in the San Diego County Public Defender Office who are accused of misconduct, in this case, retaliation, discrimination, the fact that these folks are lawyers is astounding because they should know better. But secondly, Ludmer emphasized that the county's own equal opportunity policy does not specifically include gender expression, even though the protection exists in California law, in California statute. Ludmer also said many of the county's anti-discrimination and anti-retaliation policies are so old that they don't even include sexual orientation. And Ludmer basically interprets that uh, the lack of having updated them as a sign that the county really doesn't care enough to protect this class of people. Amitha, the other lawyer alleging discrimination from the public defender is Michelle Reynoso. What is she alleging in her lawsuit? Well, Matt, I think that there's just a lot of overlap between Davina's lawsuit and Michelle Reynoso's. Reynoso basically contends that because she was a member of that same union DEI committee, she also recommended that Stone be disciplined for her alleged lynch comments to Bollinger. She says knowing that Stone still sat on her own tenure review panel and harshly questioned her about her social advocacy work during her off hours. And within her lawsuit, Reynoso makes a point of saying that she has been active in the Black Lives Matter movement on her own time and that her supervisors, many in the office, were aware of her advocacy. So we're seeing this legal action. What is the county saying about all this? Well, the county said it does not comment on pending litigation, but then it commented a little bit, basically saying that it looks forward to airing the facts of these two cases in front of juries. And Amitha, a lot of times your investigations, they spark some change. I'm curious, has the public defender's office, have they made any changes to leadership? Like, for instance, does Sherry Stone, is she still a supervisor there? They may have made changes, but at this point, I am not aware of any. The only scuttlebutt I've heard since this story aired is that the story is in circulation, not just within the public defender office, within the legal community and on the bench. It's being circulated among judges as well. That's all I know. So speaking of the legal community, do we know when these lawsuits are expected to actually go to trial or if there's even expected to be a trial here? Well, at this point, as far as I know, Davina's case goes to trial early next month, 
I believe Reynoso's case is scheduled to go to trial sometime in February. Much more to come here. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Amitha Sharma. And Amitha, thanks so much for being here with us. Oh, thanks for having me, Matt. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Now let's turn our attention to the environment, from new findings on air pollution to the root cause of a smell disrupting residents of Barrio Logan. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson has been busy in recent weeks, and we're happy to have him back on Roundtable. Eric, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. So earlier this week, you reported on a study, and it had some concerning findings related to aerosols and climate change. I guess top line here, what did that find? Well, what uh, the researchers who were based at Salk uh, and now in Oslo uh, found was that uh, looking at historical records, um, they wanted to see what the impact of cloud cover caused by pollution was on actual global warming. Um, So what they did is they looked at sulfate pollution in the atmosphere, and it creates aerosols. And and aerosols are these tiny little droplets uh, that can help form clouds. And what they found was is that the cloud cover that was created by pollution that was emitted by people actually slowed the warming uh, of the planet's climate. Uh, it was reflecting you know, some of the heat back into, the, uh, into space instead of absorbing it on the planet. Uh, and what their conclusion was as a result of this study is that uh, these uh, reductions in, uh, in the impacts of global warming may actually be masking how fast greenhouse gases are pushing up the temperature of the climate. And that's something that they're concerned about. They're worried that some of the predictions that are look forward don't do justice to, to the reality of what climate change is doing to the planet. And when we talk about this cloud cover, it sounds like you're saying that it's actually contributing to cooler temperatures? Yeah, it's counterintuitive, right? The thought that air pollution might be actually a good thing for climate warming. And the, the researchers are want to make clear that this is not a good thing for the planet. They, they don't endorse the idea that having more air pollution uh, will slow global warming. But one of the effects of these aerosols that do create more cloud cover that is lighter and more reflective is that it does keep the planet from warming as fast as it might without the air pollution. Now, one of the things moving forward as we work to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, we're going to have a cleaner air in those days ahead. And that cleaner air is not going to be masking this impact of greenhouse gases. And they worry that uh, some of the current predictions about global warming in the near future might be underestimating the impact that greenhouse gases are having. And yeah, you just mentioned it right there. Scientists may be underestimating how much temperatures may be rising due to climate change. So if that's the case, Eric, is there any idea of what that could mean like in practicality, like some local climate action plans may need to be reworked like in the future or any idea of what the impact could be? I think the big impact is our expectation of what might happen. So right now we're predicting that uh, global temperatures might rise between two and a half and four degrees Celsius over the next 50 years. And if that number is in fact three and four and a half degrees Celsius, then the impacts created by that additional warming will be more severe. The droughts will be drier, the wildfires will be hotter, 
sea level rise will be higher, all those things that they are concerned about uh, are forward-looking predictions. And so they want the, the measuring tools to be as accurate as possible. And they think if you take out the impact that some of this pollution has had and accurately measure the greenhouse gas impact, that will give you a much better picture of where we are headed. Now, Eric, the story of our changing climate, it's no doubt a major part of your job. I'm curious how you approach reporting a topic that, you know, it's frankly distressing for a lot of people and something that a lot of people have an opinion on. Well, I understand the concern. And yes, uh, there are reasons to be worried about what might be coming down the road for us. But I think in terms of reporting it, it's just letting people know what the best part of our knowledge uh, uh can offer in terms of understanding what's going to happen. So that's kind of always the the approach that I take is is looking at uh, the issues, looking at the impacts, uh, and and how it might affect us going forward. Um, and in many cases, while the predictions can be dire, climate scientists are always quick to add that these predictions are not yet written in stone. There are things that can be done now that can impact uh, the severity of climate change uh, linked to global warming. When I think of climate change, things like carbon counts and emissions, it can be confusing. Uh, Along those lines, do you find it a challenge ever to sort of dissect the science and make it understandable for our audience? It's always difficult, and it's always a a challenge in terms of understanding what's going on in the climate. But I think that's kind of the important thing, too, Uh, Uh, One thing that I strive to do when I interview researchers who are working on climate change is to get as much information from them as possible so I feel comfortable uh, explaining the topic um, in my words. And and sometimes that means a lot longer interviews just so I sort of get it. And sometimes it means just putting a little bit extra effort into making sure that it's still understandable and relatable to, to the people who might not bring that science background. And we know you have a lot more reporting to come on climate change, and we're eager to see that. But let's also move over to a story that's involving a foul-smelling odor that's affecting parts of Barrio Logan. You reported on this this week, and the culprit is the New Leaf biodiesel plant. Eric, what's causing this stench, and how long have residents been smelling it? Well, what's causing the stench? Biodiesel, by the way, is is a company that, uh, New Leaf Biodiesel is a company that takes used cooking oil from area restaurants and then kind of cleans it up and, and reformulates it into a biodiesel fuel, basically a diesel uh, replacement fuel. It's got less carbon in it. So this is a company that has a green mission, right? It has a green product. It's doing things that are beneficial uh, to uh, the environment overall. And there, there's some irony here. But their plant, which expanded about a year ago, is also creating a smell. These processes create smells that the neighbors are complaining about. And uh, I've been in that area. I've smelled the smell. It's not pleasant. Um, It's there most of the time now. And the company has come under fire from residents to stop generating this smell so that they can live their lives there. Uh, Of course, you have to understand Barrio Logan is this neighborhood where you have residential uh, buildings right next to to manufacturing buildings, uh, which is kind of rare in San Diego County. But it's one of the communities that that deals with that. This is kind of a byproduct of that. But uh, the company says it is working toward cleaning up the smell. They've been under uh, the watchful eye of uh, San Diego Air Pollution Control District now for almost a year. And there's a compliance order in place. They're installing some carbon-activated filters 
that will hopefully take care of the smell and they're waiting for a large fan that should be there by the end of this month and they hope that by early December their system will be up and running and the smell problem will be a thing of the past. You mentioned the San Diego Air Pollution Control District there. We know that they're involved here, and it sounds like that they've chosen not to shut down this plant. Do we know why are they sort of deeming the air around it safe? Well, the smell that's coming from this facility is not noxious. It's not toxic in any way. So it's just kind of a nuisance smell. Um, I don't want to downgrade that uh, for the people who live there. It's not a pleasant smell to have. Uh, But I think what regulators are The position that regulators are taking um, in the hearings that I've been involved in is that the company is working with them to make sure that there are changes. They're spending some $300,000 on this filter system. They're doing other interim steps as they work forward to try to control the smell uh, until this new filtering system comes online. And they've been very responsive. And I think that's why they're reluctant to force the plant to shut down until that system is in place. That is something, by the way, that the residents have called for repeatedly. Uh, they say that they shouldn't have to suffer uh, because this company, uh, you know, finances are involved. Uh, they say that um, uh, their uh, position is that uh, this, they'd like to see the company, the company shut down the plant until they get the filter system that gets rid of the odors in place. Um, but regulators have kind of stepped away from that idea. And we'll see if that filter system, that new one, ultimately does fix this smelly problem. I've been speaking with KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson. Eric, always good to have you here on Roundtable. Thank you. Law enforcement continues to be a field that's dominated by men. In fact, just one in 10 law enforcement supervisors are female. In a recent two-part series, KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser, she spoke with former San Diego County Sheriff's detectives who are now suing the county and alleging sexual harassment. We want to welcome Claire back to Roundtable. Claire, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Good to have you here. So in your story, you tell the story of two former San Diego Sheriff's detectives, Debbie Steesmeyer and Stacy Ralph. What did they say happened to them and why are they now taking this legal action? Right. So they both uh, worked in the Poway uh, station of the Sheriff's Department, and they worked under a sergeant by the name of Sean Silva. And uh, both of them just describe kind of constant harassment uh, from Silva, where it was just making making comments about them, making sexual comments about them, about their bodies, um, about their relationships, you know, telling people, oh, she's single, you know, introducing them as, oh, this is so-and-so, she's single, you know, making jokes about their sexual orientation, just, just kind of constant. And, th- and that's all described both in a lawsuit that, that they ended up filing and in a sheriff's department internal affairs report, which I know we'll get into a, in a little bit. But they ended up taking legal action because they both reported the behavior and feel like, you know, nothing happened. They were blacklisted, they say, in the, in their lawsuit or, um, or punished for, for making the report. They failed to advance in their career because they filed these reports. And so they ended up both leaving the sheriff's department and, and filing this lawsuit. And do we know how widespread issues like sexual harassment are within the sheriff's department, or is this something that is isolated to this one supervisor? Well, you know, it's hard to know because 
these reports aren't aren't necessarily made public. Now we're getting a chance to see some of them, but the sheriff's department doesn't publish any list of you know sexual harassment complaints or anything like that. They law enforcement agencies are required to publish just kind of a year long summary of how many complaints they received internally and externally, but they don't break them down by sexual harassment. So we don't necessarily know exactly how many there are. One thing that's happening is there's this new state law called uh, SB 16 that was signed by Governor Gavin Newsom last year. And that says that law enforcement agencies have to make public any cases with sustained findings of discrimination. And that can include then sexual harassment. So it could be, you know, racial discrimination, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation, anything like that. But that that will also often include sexual harassment if it's discrimination on the basis of gender. And so now we are getting um, some looks at, at local departments. There aren't that many yet that have been released. The sheriff's department has released, I believe, nine Oceanside Police Department has released one with with a very similar situation of of a supervisor just, you know, repeatedly harassing people who work for him. Um, but the San Diego Police Department has not yet released any. Um, they say that they will by the end of the year. Clock's ticking on that, so we'll see. And then all the other local departments say that they don't have any. So that's kind of the what we know locally based off of the state law. And Claire, do any employees of the sheriff's department, do they receive sexual harassment training? And if they do, is it like a one and done kind of training or is it like reoccurring every year? Yeah, so the state requires all employees of law enforcement agencies to get its one hour of sexual harassment training every two years. And then supervisors get an additional hour. Um, so it's something, you know, that that a lot of workplaces have. We even have it at KPBS where you just, you know, your time's up and you go and you you do your renew your training. The training is all just done on the computer and just these these online courses. And so um, I pulled the records for this particular sergeant, Sean Silva, and he last took the sexual harassment training in 2021. And the two courses combined took him one hour and 39 minutes total to complete. Debbie Stiesmeyer did address this. She said, you know, she didn't think that those types of trainings were enough. They shouldn't just be on the computer. She said they should, you know, maybe include actual people like role playing or even having someone who's been a victim of sexual harassment come and speak about about what that experience was like to make it more impactful. And Claire, what happened to those who were accused in these complaints? Were they punished in any way, put on leave or even let go of? So in the case of Sergeant Sean Silva, they launched an internal affairs uh, review of him and it ended up coming back with a sustained finding. But he retired from the department, resigned um, before that investigation was complete. And so he no longer works at the department, but he was allowed to keep his pension, which is about $5,600 a month. My other story detailed another Sergeant Mirashagi, and he he did not resign during the investigation, but once it was completed, he resigned in lieu of termination. And he again was allowed to keep his pension, which was more than $6,000 a month. You know, there was one stat from your reporting that sort of stood out to me, and it was the fact that only 10% of law enforcement supervisors are female. 
Are there any efforts underway to change that, even locally or even like nationally? Yeah, I mean, it's something when you hear about cases of women like uh, Debbie Stiesmeyer and Stacey Ralph, who always dreamed of being in law enforcement, were working their way up. They were both detectives, um, so they'd work their way up and, you know, would have liked to have continued. Then they're leave the department because of the experiences that they have. So they will clearly, you know, at least at the sheriff's department, likely not become supervisors in the future. You kind of wonder, is there this catch-22 where women are not advancing maybe because of the the treatment that they receive or how, you know, how they're interacted with. And so then there are fewer people at the top, fewer women at the top to change that culture. You know, I talked to a number of experts and there isn't any kind of like big program in that way to change that, but more just a discussion of, you know, you really need to have these strict policies and you need to enforce them. So Claire, the county, it's soon going to have its first female sheriff. Current undersheriff Kelly Martinez will soon take the number one role. Has she given any indication that sort of along the lines you're talking about that she attempts to change this, you know, male dominated culture? Yeah, it's really interesting because, yes, she is. She will be the first female sheriff in San Diego. She didn't talk about that at all during her campaign. And, you know, that's her prerogative. She doesn't have to if she doesn't want to. I did ask her about this specific situation with Sergeant Sean Silva, and she said that it was handled correctly, basically, that they launched an investigation and, you know, the right actions were taken. I don't know if the the detectives involved would would agree with that. But she hasn't really, you know, talked about anything about changing the, the male-dominated culture. But it will be interesting to see. Clearly, she's a woman and she's now leading the sheriff's department. So, you know, w- whether that has an impact in terms of how, you know, new programs or how women are promoted or anything like that, you know, I guess we'll have to see. And we know that you're going to stay on this story. Claire Tregesser is an investigative reporter with KPBS News. And Claire, always great to have you here on Roundtable. Thank you. And we're going to have to end it there for this week's edition of KPBS Roundtable. I want to thank our guests all from KPBS News this week, Amitha Sharma, Eric Anderson, and Claire Tregesser. Be sure to stream our show anytime as a podcast. We hope you had a great holiday break and were able to give thanks with friends and family. Here on Roundtable, we're thankful for a few people. Our senior producer, Megan Burke, our producer, Andrew Bracken, and technical directors, Rebecca Chacon and Adrian Villalobos. They make this show happen every single week. I'm your host, Matt Hoffman. Thanks so much for being here with us and enjoy the rest of your holiday weekend. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu.